I googled this week different ways to live your life, and um, there was the first four hits that came up. The first one said 101 ways to live your life, uh, which is a bit many for me. Uh, the next one was 45 ways to live life to the fullest. Uh, the next was 30 ways, courtesy of the Tiny Buddha website. Thank you for that. And then um, the fourth one was three ways to live your life, and I thought three ways to live your life. That's a bit more. That's a number I can get into. So I click on that one. Uh, but each of the three ways have like 10 bullet points each, so it ends up being dozens of ways to live your life. Uh, for Christians, the early Christians were called the followers of the way. The video there talked about the risen way, the way of Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so Christians were called followers of the way. To be a Christian is to be on a road, on a path, on a journey. It's to be a student. It's to be active in our pursuit of and learning from and listening to and being steered by Jesus. And after Easter Sunday, that way became the risen way. We're those who don't just worship a dead God or a crucified Messiah, the God of Good Friday. You know, Christians, they break bread and they drink wine as an act of remembering Jesus' death, don't we? It's all very gruesome and the First Christians were accused of cannibalism because it was, it was said of them that they ate the body of their God. And every Sunday, churches around the world, they break bread in an act of remembering Jesus' body and they drink Jesus' blood. And so on Easter Sunday, we thought chocolate and champagne seems the more appropriate response. It's about celebration. It's about the implications, not just of his death, but of the resurrection. We are those who live the risen way. And the risen way for Christians involves not just, not just being forgiven by God, it involves learning to forgive those as well. To follow the risen way is about not just loving our enemies, but it's about praying for those who persecute us. It's about not, being, not just being faithful to a marriage partner, but it's about declaring a war on lust and impurity of all sorts. The risen way involves not just withholding criticism and condemnation of others, it also involves a radical examination of self before we pass critique on anybody else. The risen way involves not just caring for the sick or praying for them. It involves staying with someone during a plague. At least that's what the early Christians did. That's what they thought it meant. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I'm a bit of a history geek, and I read recently in 165 AD during the reign of Marcus Aurelius of the film Gladiator fame. That's right. Uh, that's why it piqued my interest. During the reign of Marcus Aurelius, there was a plague in the Roman Empire that devastated the region and killed, they reckon, between a quarter and a third of the entire population. Marcus Aurelius writes about it and describes lines of wagons and carts hauling out the dead from the cities. People were seen abandoning their loved ones when symptoms of the plague appeared. And he writes of half-dead creatures trying to make it to fountains for refreshment. But Christians stayed and nursed the sick. And often the, the sick that they nursed got better. Often they died. Often the Christians themselves died but those that got better led, led, led weight to the claim that Christians were miracle workers anyway. But the risen way for those Christians looked like that. In fact, one of my favorite quotes from the uh, time was, of, um, was something that the Emperor Julian said, who was sometime around a similar period. Julian hated Christians, and he wrote, It is disgraceful 
that these impious Galileans, which is his, his word for Christians, it's disgraceful that these Christians support not only their own poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. That's the risen way. It's the way of the first Christians. The risen way isn't always easy. In fact, there's quite a lot of promises in the Bible that if you, if you start following the risen way and decide to become a student of Jesus, it's very hard. The Apostle Paul writes about it in a letter to a church in, in Corinth in Greece. He says, We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, stricken down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. The way that Christians live is meant to display not just the death of Jesus, but the life of Jesus and the implications of that life for the world. Perhaps a, an intense way to start a celebration of Easter Sunday. But I want us to talk today together about that risen way. We're going to look at a few Bible verses and we're going to engage with this idea for ourselves. Today is, is April Fool's Day, isn't it? So, so it begs the question, is Easter the greatest April Fool has ever been played on the world. Would the original disciples be marveling at how well the practical joke went? Can you believe it? The entire world turned upside down by this, this April Fool, this prank that we played on the world. I mean, if you think about it, the first disciples were the only people in history who would have known categorically if what they were doing was just all made up. I mean, a lot of people believe things very strongly. A lot of people die for things that they believe very strongly. But these people, it wasn't a question of belief. They claimed to see things with their eyes. They were the ones who knew. They either got together and said, let's make up this lie and make ourselves famous. Although, as it turns out, it got them all killed. But it might have been that they said, let's make up this lie and transform the world. My first memory of, of an April Fool was when my dad woke me up as a kid and told me that an aeroplane had crashed in our back garden overnight. And I ran to the back window to see this aeroplane that wasn't there. And I learned that day never to trust my father about anything. That's why we should never believe our parents' kids. And that concludes this morning's message. Let's go home. Uh, we hate it when we, get found, when we get found out that a practical joke has been played on us. You know, when you discover there's no crashed plane in your garden, or you get home and realize, that's why people were kicking me all day, and you take the sign off your back. Being on the receiving end isn't funny of a practical joke. But the thing is about Christians is that Christians have always been mocked ever since they came up with this idea that Jesus was alive. It's not like in the last 150 years some bright Westerners went, hang on a minute, I don't think dead people come back from the dead. These Christians have lied to us, these foolish Christians. No, Christians have always been mocked for their strange belief in the significance of this man and the significance of this day. In fact, in the, in the second century AD, there's this great piece of graffiti that was found on a wall somewhere. And it's a picture of a, a man looking up at someone else who's dying on a cross, and they've got an ass's head or a donkey's head. I think we have a picture for it. And um, there it, oh, you can't really see it. But that, that was found in the second century. And there's, there's the text there. And the text, it's a, it's a piece of mockery. It says, Alex Menmos worships his God. And that was what they said about Christians. They worship an ass. They worship a donkey. Because the idea of worshipping someone who's being killed on a cross is like saying that 
someone on death row is the saviour of the world, or a criminal is the saviour of the world. So Christians sometimes get mocked for that, but often Christians, they get mocked because they deserve it, <laughs> because they do foolish things, right? So I, I learned recently of one church a couple of years ago now who um, printed a big banner to celebrate Easter Sunday, but instead of putting Christ is risen, they put um, Chris is risen. <laughs> Which is just brilliant, isn't it? Like, you know, the irony or the brilliant thing about it is that the person who leads the church was called Chris when this happened. So um, there we go. So sometimes they get mocked because it's a strange idea. Sometimes they just plain deserve it. Um, so are Christians fools for what they believe? Well, Proverbs twelve fifteen says this about fools. It says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. And um, how many of us have kids that make the definition of fool by that description? In the, in the thesaurus, it gives a alter- few alternatives for the word fool. Instead of a fool, it says a buffoon, a clown, a nitwit, a bird brain, a dunce, an ignoramus, and a nincompoop. <laughs> I just love that word. Christians are nincompoops by that definition. Or are they? Um, are Christians foolish for believing such ridiculous things? Um, so it started with this idea of the cross, and then it came into this even more embarrassing idea that on Easter Sunday, Christians go around saying that Jesus is alive. Well, I want to read something for us from Acts chapter 17 um, that again adds force to this idea that um, Christians have always been mocked and always been considered foolish for this. So the Apostle Paul, one of the leaders in the early church, visits Athens, like one of the capital cities of the day, to tell them about the new Christian Religion, the new Christian idea. And he's going on about Jesus and resurrection so much that they, they mock him. And they say he's, he's teaching us about these new divinities, Jesus and resurrection. They thought resurrection was a, must be a god because he's talking about it so much. This idea that Jesus has been resurrected, so there's two gods. And then anyway, in, in chapter 17, verse 28 to 34, I'll read it. It might appear behind us. Uh, it says this. So Paul quotes um, one of their poets talking about Zeus, of all people. He says, In him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his children. Being then God's children, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. I love, the, I love the honesty of the Bible. Um, even after Jesus' resurrection, he's on the mountain and it says that the disciples worshipped him, but some doubted. The Bible is very honest that the claims of Christianity are so outlandish and grand. That it's not the kind of thing that just people just swallow and go, oh, okay, fine, we'll just go along with that. Even when Paul in Athens, the Bible is honest enough to say some mocked him. And of course they would have mocked him because they, they knew that the body, with all of its kind of animalistic things with illnesses and disease, and the body is a cage that our soul longs to be free from. That's what the ancients believed. And so for Paul to come along and say, Jesus is alive in a body, resurrected, they all thought, what a stupid idea. Why would anybody after death, when you've been freed from this body, want to come back to it? But in what Paul says to them, 
I think he tells us a couple of things about Easter that I want to draw out this morning. First of all, he talks about the urgency of Easter, and then he talks about the offer of Easter. The urgency of Easter is this. He says, the days of ignorance are over. The days when God overlooked our ignorance. He says, there's a day coming when everyone, in every tribe and nation, tongue and people group, everyone on the planet is going to be forced to give an account for their devotion. There's a day coming, Paul says, everyone's going to be asked whose fool they are. Are you a fool for Christ? You're a fool for something else. Because the reality is, we're all fools for something. We all devote ourselves to things and bet on various horses or ideas, ideologies, that we hope will bring us rescue. Now for the Athenians, for those in Athens, they had their gold and silver idols that they bowed down to. And he says, for you who've devoted yourself to these idols, you're, you're making a fool of yourself for these idols, these gods. There's coming a day where you'll have to stand before God and give an answer for that. And as modern Westerners, we, if we don't do it out loud, we probably do it in our minds. We mock people like that, bowing down to gold and silver. I mean, gold and silver is pretty, but bowing down to it, calling out to a statue, rescue me. It's silly, isn't it? Silly. We would never do anything as stupid as that. No, no, our, our gods aren't made of gold and silver, made of plastic. And they are credit cards. <laughs> this little device can bring me everlasting joy. If I hand it over to enough cashiers and I engage in enough transactions, I will have peace and security everlasting. Or if not plastic, people bow down to, devote themselves to their chemical impulses, their desires. Now, we've concluded that we're just animals, and so whatever your desire is, that is God. That's, that's what you should obey. What is it? There's a, in, in Brighton, on the, in the harbor, there's a piece of graffiti on the wall that says, um, great is my desire. No, my desire is great. Great is my desire. It's about that. I bow down to desire or to chemical impulses. Well, in 2007 or whenever it was, there was that... The, the latest credit crunch or crisis. And in the wake of that, there was a string of high-profile suicides as people who had made themselves fools for money were then shown to be the fools that they were. People who devoted themselves to money lost millions and millions of pounds overnight. And many of them took their own lives, couldn't handle being made a fool of by money. Because the truth is, the things that we devote ourselves to make us into fools. You devote yourself too much to your career and it will make a fool out of you. It will ruin your health or it will destroy your family, your close relationships. You'll become a fool because you've chased after career. You devote yourself too much to your own beauty. Spend too much time and attention on your own beauty. Sometimes you can damage your own body in the process or you can become too self-obsessed perhaps that you neglect those around you. you. You find it unable to see the needs of those around you because you're too concerned with yourself and your image. You've become a fool. We're all aware of people who've devoted themselves to sex or to romance and done everything they can to find the salvation that those things offer. And there's that, there's that scene in the film Love Actually, um, which is where I get most of my theology from for life. Um, but there's a scene in Love Actually 
where um, Alan Rickman's character gets caught. Um, he, he's, he's bought a, an expensive necklace for some younger lady who's not his wife, and his wife finds the necklace, and she's, she's distraught. And she speaks to him, and she says, what, what, do you, what would you do if you were me? And he says to her, I've been a classic fool, in a very understated British way. I've been a classic fool. When I first attended church, that's exactly what I thought of Christians. They are classic fools. What is this? There's a band. People are singing and getting very excited, but I can't see anything that they're worshipping. There's nothing here that they're singing to. I think the, the, first Christians were the, the Christians were the first people to be called atheists because you can't see their God. And that's exactly what, what I felt when I walked into a church and saw all this display of emotion. British people displaying emotion is a miracle in itself. But then British people displaying emotion about religious things, that's not a miracle. That's concerning. They've lost their minds. Uh, and then sometime after that, I remember going to a, a, a football match, a premiership game with my brother. And um, I, I'm, I, love, I like football, but I'm not a kind of season goer of games. If I was, I wouldn't say a season goer of games. <laughs> That's how you can tell. And, um, and I saw just the, the passion and the anger that was boiling over in these men who were chanting abuse and saying all kinds of horrible things about the opponent's players and fans. And I thought, these people are fools. This game where people are 22 people are kicking a pig's bladder around on a pitch and it's bringing out just the most horrible aspects of these people's personalities. They've been made a fool of by this game. Everyone is a fool for something or a fool for somebody. Whose fool are you? What are you making yourself a fool for? Easter's urgency or the message of Easter brings with it some urgency that forces you to think and ask the question, are you making a fool over yourse- out of yourself for the right thing? Will you stand before God one day? You know, the reason that um, in medieval times kings had court jesters and um, fools to entertain them was a couple, for a couple of reasons. They had these people kind of entertain them and make them forget about things so that on the one hand they wouldn't start any wars with people <laughs> <laughs> and we end up killing all their subjects in a battle that didn't mean anything. And, and also, so they wouldn't think about death. It was the purpose of a fool or a court jester to stop a king starting wars and, and stopping him thinking about serious subjects like death. And we don't have men dress up in silly costumes and um, entertain us and make a fool out of themselves, but we still have things in, in our lives that perform the same function. We have these phones that we devote ourselves to, or our TVs, and when they stop entertaining us, we upgrade to get the latest one because it'd be horrible. If I didn't have my smartphone, I might start a war. Um, Well, actually, we learned yesterday that now our smartphones are causing us to become violent, apparently. Um, Some of the the big apps of the social media giants are now provoking aggression in people, as the, the headlines yesterday. But we devote ourselves to these things. These things are there, rather, to stop us getting bored. Because when we're bored, we do destructive things. That's why we read books. Entertain me, so that I don't have to think about death. And that's why we spend a lot of our time on Facebook or Instagram trying to sell an image of ourselves. Entertain me, because if you don't, I'll have to think about death. I'll have to start a war, or 
have a fight with my, I have to talk to my wife. And, and that, that's what we mean by start a war these days. It's our own kingdoms, isn't it? Rather than, we're not kings and queens. Or we don't look to Facebook or Instagram. We might look to some of our friends to distract us, like Jack Daniels. And we might go to parties, entertain me, so that I don't have to stop and consider the urgency of Easter. Paul says that Easter is proof. Jesus' resurrection is proof that there's a judgment coming. But he doesn't stop there. He's not just saying this to taunt people. The reason he brings it up is to talk also about the offer of Easter. There's the urgency of Easter, but then there's the offer of Easter. The reason Paul talked about it is because of its implications for us. The fact of Jesus' resurrection from the dead means that there is rescue available for the world. There is forgiveness. There is the removal of shame. There is relationship with God again. You and I have been created to know God. The reason we're so terrified of death, say, or the reason we distract ourselves from thinking about things like that is because we're aware we're cut off from God. And at death, it's very final. Jesus, his resurrection means that there's hope even beyond death, that life doesn't end at death. And imagine if one day you're at home and, and through the, the letterbox comes this very official looking envelope with this very official headed notepaper from some law firm. And the letter says that some distant, long lost, twice removed, third back from the dead auntie or uncle that you'd never heard of has died and they couldn't find any of the other relatives and so you have been left this amazing inheritance. What would you do? Oh, it's just junk mail. <laughs> just throw it in the bin. Well, imagine if it looked so official that you thought, this doesn't look like just the latest offer from Morrison's or a scam. If nothing else, you'd, you'd call the number and you'd investigate it for yourselves. Well, elsewhere in the Bible, Easter, Paul, Paul talks about Easter as not just being proof of judgment coming, but as an offer of something better on its way. He, wrote, he writes to a church in Rome, and he says to them in Romans 10, chapter 9, he says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what he says. He says, Confess with your mouth. Jesus is Lord, which basically means if you confess that Jesus is in charge, he's your king. And if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So there's a lot of people who say, so is that just like a spell? It's like a, some kind of magic incantation? If I just say these words, spin around on the spot and drink some schler or at least a Sunday and sing some song? Is that, how do you, how do you get this belief a lot of people in our society would say, I, I wish I had what you have. I wish I could believe, but I'm just not that gullible. Is <laughs> what's often underneath that. Just wish I was as gullible as you were, but oh well, I'm just more enlightened than you. I, just, I know that people don't come back from the dead. Well, Paul says be- believing isn't just something, something you arrive at because you eat a bad slice of pizza and wake up in the morning feeling different. Belief is something you arrive at as a result, often, of examination and exploration. In the video that we watched at the start, you see Peter running towards the tomb to explore it. And while on his way there, he's filled with doubt or feelings of shame as he considers what he did in denying Jesus a few days before. And he thinks, 
if he's alive, I'm going to have to see him. I'm going to have to acknowledge what I've done. He becomes aware of the implications of Easter. But he doesn't stop running. He still keeps going. I mean, why wouldn't someone want to explore the claims of Easter? Maybe there's too many scams around these days. Maybe there's just too many different ideas out there. Just another one. Crazy idea. Maybe people are afraid. Maybe you're afraid that it might be true. I mean, you wouldn't put it like that. But you know, deep down, if it was true, your life doesn't belong to you anymore. You're suddenly going to be accountable. So we kind of shrug it off. Or maybe you're just afraid of perhaps being different from your peers. If I believe this, none of my friends believe this. None of my family, they'll think I'm crazy. I don't want to be a fool in their eyes. And I mean, that'll happen. If you're not a Christian and you went home today and said, I've become a Christian, you'll get that look from your friends like, okay, I'm going to go see the doctor about that. We'll see if we can get you something for that. I was, I mean, just yesterday, um, I was out for dinner with Amy. It was our anniversary, uh, 11 years. Um, she survived. Um, I was out for dinner and, and the waiter at the end gave us the bill and he said, oh, are you up too much um, tomorrow for Easter Sunday? And I said, well, we've got church in the morning. And as I said that, I was like this, oh my goodness. Okay, it's lovely. See you later. There's some crazy people on table three. Maybe, I mean, in all honesty, sometimes we're afraid. If it's true and I believe it, then I don't want to be different. I mean, in this society, you would be different. Globally, you'd be quite normal. A third of the population of the planet say that they are Christians. But in this country... It's less than that. Anyway. But Christian faith isn't like the fool in Proverbs who just believes something in spite of the evidence against it. Christian faith is often something that people arrive at after investigation and exploration. Lee Strobel is a a Christian writer who was an atheist. And then one day his wife came home from church and said, I've become a Christian. And he thought, goodness me, I need to solve this. I need to fix her. He was a lawyer. And he had always thought that the claims of Christianity never stood up to the test uh, or just the legal tests that he was used to. So he, he used his legal skills to examine the claims of Christianity and spoke to all the right people in the high up places in universities and things. And after his examination, he became a Christian. He found for himself that the claims of Christianity were more true than he'd realized. And he writes this. He says, I didn't become a Christian because God promised I would have a happier life than I had as an atheist. He never promised any such thing. Rather, I became a Christian because the evidence was so compelling that Jesus really is the one and only Son of God who proved his divinity by rising from the dead. That it meant meant that following him was the most rational and logical step I could take. Easter comes with an urgency, but it also comes with an offer. And the question's still hanging. Whose fool are you? Whose fool will you be? What way are you going to go? What way are you going to live your life? Whose advice are you going to follow? What are you going to bet on? If you're a Christian today, and Jesus calls us, his followers, to the risen way. And it's a way. It's a journey. A Christian isn't someone who just prays a prayer, says a magic spell, or ticks a box on a census thing and goes, I'm a Christian now. To be a Christian is to follow the risen way. Jesus calls you to surrender your life, your dreams, your wishes to him, to become a student of him. Jesus calls us as Christians 
If you're going to walk on the risen way, he says, I want you to trust me with your finance. I want everything you have. It's mine. And I want you to live with the same priorities as before. He says, I want you to trust me with your sex life. And that's radical in our society. We're told we're essentially just sexual beings. And whatever our impulses and urges are, that's who we are. Whereas Jesus says, no, no, you're more than just an animal with urges. You're someone who can trust me with your desires. He calls us to trust him with our priorities. He calls us to be on his mission and his purpose for our lives. The Bible says that if you're a Christian, you are not your own anymore. You've been bought at a price. To be on the risen way is to daily say, I'm yours. Now, help me to follow you. To live the risen way is to live with eternity in view then. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead, it means that you and I will one day be raised from the dead. It means that death is not the end. I'm not going to float away and drift off into some mystical, mysterious heaven place where there'll be plenty of chubby babies and harps and clouds. The Bible says that at the end, it, the end is going to look a lot like Jesus' resurrection. The whole world is going to be raised bodily in a new creation, a new world. I don't know what that's going to look like. Paul says it's going to look, it's going to be some aspects of this world that are the same. Jesus had a body, but there's going to be a lot of aspects of this world that are going to be different. Jesus could teleport. I mean, you read the accounts. One minute he's there eating fish, the next minute he's gone. He walks through walls. There's going to be some elements of life that are the same, some that are different, but the point is the certainty comes not because we understand it or grasp it, but because Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's called the firstborn from among the dead. He's that sip of wine that the waiters give you at the restaurant when they bring out a bottle of wine and say, do you want some wine? And you say yes, and you sip it, and you don't really know what to do, so you say, I'll have some more. Uh, that sounds fine, for, fine to me. Um, Jesus is that. He was raised from the dead as though God was saying, this is what's coming. Do you want the rest? And Christians are those who say, I want that. I want that. Our body's broken and falling apart. I want a new one. But to live the risen way is to live with that in view. It's to make decisions today with eternity in mind. Before we buy the latest car or upgrade our house or go on those holidays, we need to be trying to think as much as we can, as eternally minded as we can. What does this purchase or this life or this decision look like when I stack it up against what's most important? Do I need this latest is this the best thing I can do? This life is just a shadow or an echo. When we wake up beyond death, the time of testing, if you like, will be gone. And only what's done for Jesus will last. It's hard to live a Christian life. It's hard to live the Christian life, to live the risen way. We need one another. That's why we run groups. That's why we gather weekly to worship him, to make friends, to support one another in the Christian life. You can't do it alone. But that's why Jesus gave us his Holy Spirit to strengthen us, to help us, to empower us. To be a Christian is to start by saying, I need Jesus' help. I'm going to follow this one. To continue as a Christian is to continually say, I still need his help. I still need the help of his friends, his people. Easter's implications is that Jesus is alive. 
that your life isn't meaningless, your pain isn't pointless, your situation is never hopeless. It means that your choices matter, how you fight today matters. Not because God has a big stick and he's going to come and punish you, but because he's a good father, comes to invite you to trust him with real choices every day. And we know this to be certain, we know this to be true because of Easter. You know, God offers each one of us what we all long for, not a distraction from death, but the ability to understand our end and walk towards it with courage. God offers us what we need most of all, not the latest gadget, but an end to our restlessness. God offers you peace. St. Augustine said in the third century, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Easter says you can find your rest in him. Let's pray together. I'm going to invite John on the band and we've got a, a bit of time just to celebrate the implications of Easter for ourselves and perhaps offer ourselves afresh or maybe for the first time to Jesus. Say, Lord, please come and lead me. Please come and help me. For many of us, we'll feel like we're at our wit's end with this life. Things are very painful and very difficult. And Easter Sunday offers us hope that says it won't always be so. Easter Sunday offers us hope that says that where God says, I know what it's like. I'm not immune to your pain. I'm not unfeeling. For those of us who find ourselves drawn to so many different ways of living and ways to do and things to buy, Easter Sunday offers us that promise that you can find your rest in him. Let's pray.